Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It is my honor to get to introduce our panel this morning, the Performance Precaution Playoff, Player Health, and to introduce our panelists. This panel will be moderated by Gretchen Reynolds, a New York Times columnist. Our panelists include Adir Schiffman, Executive Chairman of Catapult, Dr. John DeFiori, the Director of Sports Medicine for the NBA, and Casey Smith, Head Athletic Trainer for the Dallas Mavericks. This panel will be 45 minutes, followed by approximately 10 minutes of Q&A from the audience. If you'd like to submit a question for our panelists, please do so on Twitter using the hashtag player performance. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Gretchen for the panel. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I, I am definitely the layperson on this panel. Um, so I will be representing all of you. Um, these are the experts. But I do want to start by saying it's, it's a really exciting time to own a body, <laughs> especially if you're working with people who use their bodies, the athletes, to push at the outer limits of performance. Because as I'm sure all of you know, we've never been able to look inside and all around the body in the way that we can now. We can strap on all these kinds of monitors. We can gather blood and saliva and generate just reams of biomarkers and data, mountains of data. But do we know, do you guys know how to use that data to actually reach that perfect inflection point where athletic performance is at its peak, but you haven't tipped over into injury, overuse, overtraining, and illness? Do we know what the data means? Do we, is it possible that the data is ahead of the science and behind intuition and experience. And that's what I want, I'm hoping these, these men can tell us. Um, the first question I wanna ask is, each of you have been doing this for quite a while. So in the last five years, which is a, a short time frame, but a lot has happened. In about the last five years, how has the introduction of all this data changed how you work with athletes, and what is your favorite part of having all this data? And I suppose secondarily, what is your least favorite part? Um, do you wanna start, Casey? Uh, sure, you know, I think, you know, when we're talking about data and we're talking about, you know, the information that, that we're obtaining for player health and player performance, um, you know, the vastness of it can be a little overwhelming. The novelty of some of it can be a little overwhelming. Uh, but to answer your question, within the, within the past five years, I think for me, for our team directly, um, the data that we've been able to collect, um, particularly as it relates to 
um, player tissue quality of connective tissue um, of things that uh, what we would call cumulative injuries in the past. We're able to assess those better, assess the current state of the player better, and our interventions have changed dramatically um, based on that data that we're able to collect. Some of those things, I think we used to kind of consider that they were um, injuries or, or conditions of the body that would occur as a player got older or as a player had more miles on them or more wear and tear on those. And we're, we're finding that some of those things that we used to assess as it relates to connective tissue and, and joint structures that we're able to modify for the better. Uh, so I think in the past five years, that's been one of the biggest takeaways for us uh, is, is some of the imaging data and some of the interventions that we've been able to have to actually improve player function, uh, improve their abilities as they've gotten older, or, or take a past injury situation and make it better. I, I think that's the biggest difference that, that I've seen for our team currently. Um, and then maybe the, the downside in, in the past five years, and I, and I know these gentlemen can speak to it, um, is, is you know, not just the collection of data, but the application of the data. Um, not just on the team side, but on the player individual side uh, as well. So that, that, that continues to be a challenge. I, I assume that that is going to be a challenge moving forward. When you talk about assessing the, the tissue, what, what kind of data are you actually gathering? Sort of, can you t talk us through one of the players that you might be you know, anonymizing, but yeah. how do you use that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, that, the common thing, a common thing in basketball is tendinopathy. Mm -hmm. uh, a common thing across uh, many professional sports is tendinopathy. And, and our ability to assess that and assess the true structure within the tendon and knowing the changes and measuring the changes that we're able to make has, has been the most impactful for us. So the, the, the way that we're able to, to analyze that, the way we're able to collect that has changed dramatically for us uh, for the ability to improve the player. We used to kind of assume that that was a, something that we're going to have to manage versus something that we can improve, and we now view that as something we can improve. I mean, I think if we speak broadly about, you know, the last five years or maybe six or seven years and what's changed, coaches had always known that there was this line beyond which if you push performance, you're going to start uh, risking player welfare and player health. But Technology has enabled us to quantify where different athletes are along those lines now, and I think that's dramatically changed the focus on player welfare and player performance. It's deepened the understanding of how to manage those players and how far to push them, and it's also given us an understanding that, in fact, in pursuing you know, a performance precaution trade-off, that if you try and protect the athlete too much and bring them way back in their training or try to reduce impact injuries in the pre-season, in fact, that doesn't protect the athlete at all. That increases the risk of injury to athletes subsequently. And so rather than just being a line across which injury happens when you push performance too hard, there's a line at the bottom end as well, which is if you don't train that athlete hard enough, they are much more prone to injury in game situations. The other thing I'd say in the last five years is just that you know we started working with, uh, with Casey back in 2010, we were, we were talking about, and the passage of time builds up a pool of data about players. And that also um, significantly improves the ability to optimise that player's performance whilst balancing player welfare at the same time. And, you know, the first three or six months, it's very difficult to get that balance right, but with an increased amount of, of data uh, and some history, that becomes very powerful. Well, and that raises the question of 
lots of data, but how do we know how it, that data applies to an individual player and how to balance data against what the player himself may say about how he feels? And how, how do either of you deal with that? Well, I, I think, you know, what we're talking about with individual teams and, is a small end. And, and you mentioned that you get, over time, you begin to collect larger amounts of data. And that larger amount of data then is able, you're able then to make individual player decisions. Make an individual player decision on a large, re reflective of a larger body of data is much more powerful and effective. That being said, you still have to individualize it to each player. When you have large bodies of data, you have aggregate data, that aggregate data is often missing very important specific information that can confound your decision making. And so you have to understand that you may have lots of information on player load, uh, but you may not, you have to individualize it to that player. So if we're talking about a tendinopathy, has that player had other injuries which may affect that tendon, the loading pattern? If that player's had an unstable ankle, well, they're gonna have more problems loading that knee, or if they have a problem with their hip. So you have to individualize all that data to that player, but you need that larger database, that aggregate data, to help inform your decision making. And for me, when we're able now to accumulate data over many years, it allows us to make more informed decisions because we now have ability to benchmark things. Um, just even in the league with, with our electronic um, database that we utilize um, to track injuries, for example, now rather than overreacting to a series of a few serious injuries, we can look back on data over a five-year period of time and say, okay, what, what, how does this fit in? What was it like three years ago? What's been our trend in that particular injury? So we don't overreact to sort of statistical blips uh, and make more informed uh, responses to, to things that can occur. Well, how important is still fundamental experience and possibly intuition? And, and what you, Casey, have, have previously said to me is the art of dealing with the athletes and how do you integrate then data into your sense of the, the art of training? Yeah, and, and you know, and if, in my opinion, using the data correctly is it is is giving the, the coaches or the medical personnel or the performance personnel a, a, an impetus for change for the player. You know, we, we the discussions with the player of their of their training, of their planning, of their programming, you know, have to have context. And if we can take this data and give them the context that, that's needed for them to to help, you know, to help drive them to change or help to drive um, you know interventions that we know are going to help their health, help their performance. Um, you know, that, that's the art side of it. You know, I think sometimes there's a perception that, you know, a player's going to come in and we're going to give them a list of, you know, this is your load data, this is your sleep data, this is your hydration status, and this is what we're going to do today. And, you know, it, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that laid out. It, it was, we were talking earlier, the, that conversation still needs to start with, how are you feeling today? You know, we need the, the we need the player's interpretation of how they're feeling, their subjective report, and then we use the, the data as the tools to to affect the change that for the modifiable things that we think are best for them. What happens if a player says, I feel great, and his data says you don't feel great? <laughs> how do you how do you um, deal with that that aspect? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, that comes into that conversation. You know, that's where, 
you know, having the coach, having management, uh, having ownership on board, you know, allows you to, to have those conversations like, while you're feeling great, that's the goal. You know, we have some data here that think we may push you into a risk situation, so we may dial you back today, understanding that you do feel great, but you need to understand that that is the goal. And so while you do feel great, we do have these, these markers that think maybe we need to pull you back a little bit. And, and, and that's the back and forth, that's the trust that you, that you need to build you know, with, those, with those daily, weekly conversations. Now, one, of the, one of the most fundamental things is not to look at all of this in, in the short-term game-to-game or even season-to-season. Season. One of the objectives of using all of this kind of technology or all of the kind of medical approaches and interventions, ideally it's to extend the playing career of the player as well. And, um, and so we know lots of athletes that are in playoffs or, um, and really push themselves and we watch them go past the point where they get injuries that without data are shortening their careers. And I think that part of the benefit of all of this and understanding where the player is and having a reference point. So when a player says, I feel like this, that might be fantastic for today or this season, but actually pushing that player beyond there will be limiting to their, the longevity of their careers. Well, if you're going to use the data to push to find that sort of exact tipping point where you're right before it in terms of peak performance but not injury. It's obviously extremely important that the data be accurate um, and that it be accurate across different um, platforms. So how, how do you, you obviously can't guarantee that, but how do you achieve that? Um, I know Dr. DeFiore that the NBA is working on. Yeah. Um, so you know, when you're working with an individual player um, or, or as an organization within a team framework, you know, you, you want to be able to have data that's meaningful. But in order to have data that's meaningful, again, you need that wider database. So what the, what the league has done is partnered with the uh, Players Association, and we formed a wearables uh, tech, technology committee. And the reason for that was exactly what you're saying. For a player to make informed decisions with their training staff, in terms of their training, in terms of injury prevention, in terms of career longevity, and for a team to have information that's gonna help them make organizational decisions about their roster, they need accurate information. And so what the league has done with the Players Association is we've created a validation process. We've called for uh, international groups to submit proposals to externally validate the accuracy and also the reproducibility of the different wearable um, uh, technology uh, applications that are available. And so we're right now in the process, we're pretty far along in the process, and there's three, three really components of it. Right now the first part is the, the validation component, the accuracy, the reproducibility, and we're working with groups at uh, Fraunhofer Research Institute in Germany and also University of Michigan to look at um, how accurate they are, do they measure what they say they're measuring, how, how reproducible is that measurement, how does it compare when you look at a company's device and you take that device and you put it on a player day to day to day, and then you have the same company with a different device on a different player, which, how do they match up? Um, so those things are really important for, for making determinations, making assessments. In the best interest of player health, you need accurate information. The other two arms of that are uh, cybersecurity, so to protect the information, and the league again has worked with the Players Association on developing strategies around that to protect the data. Um, and then the third part is game use, and that is still evolving. That's the discussion that will be had as we move forward with, with the whole process. 
But we recognize as a league and organization that this information can be very valuable for player health. Um, what we've kind of danced around a little bit is that what we're really talking about is injury prevention. And this data gives us more, much more precise exposure information, how much a player is, is doing, how much work they're performing. We, we won't have to use as many surrogates of minutes played in a game. We'll actually be able to measure how intense those minutes are when they're playing. And what does that mean for a player who plays frequently, who maybe has built up a big base, versus a player who's been coming off the bench for spot minutes, and how do you manage that player? Because they may be at higher risk for injury. So anyway, that's what the league's been doing, and we're pretty far along in the process, and we hope you know, maybe for this season we'll have some way of implementing um, this more, these more uh, validated tools. And the NBA should be commended for that. They're only the second league that we know of in the world that has, is going through this independent process. I mean, we love independent processes. I think it's, it's fundamentally important. It's great that the Players Association has been so supportive and, and gotten on board. And I think that, you know, five years ago, this was not anywhere near as common as it is today, this wearable or any other kind of, uh, of measurement and, uh, and, and quantification. And as any industry grows, there are uh, things that happen around the fringes. And I think it's fundamental to keep bringing that back to independent, um, independent validation that ensures that what stays front and center is the health and welfare of the player, because fundamentally performance is secondary to that. And you know, this is all about making sure that um, the player stays healthy, that injuries can be reduced, both for men, women, boys, girls, across the spectrum. It's useful across the spectrum, but that needs to stay front and center beyond any performance or commercial implications of the technologies. Well, and, and obviously having that kind of validation will presumably increase player buy-in, but at the moment, how do you deal with it if a player simply says, I don't wish to have you gather that information? How do you find or how do you deal with player autonomy and also privacy issues? I'll open, <laughs> I'll, 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 yeah. and, open and that, it to everyone. You know, that, that, that's a primary conversation that we have, you know, with the players is that, you know, explain, you know, what we're, what we're measuring um, you know, some of the data that we're collecting, uh, but with the understanding that they have a say-so in, in whether that data gets collected. Um, they, have, they have rights to how that data is interpreted, to be able to view that data and, and see the context of that data. Um, but the conversation, the most important part of that conversation that we have with them is that we're looking at modifiable factors. And then we'll look, we're looking at things that can improve their health, that can improve their performance, and that ultimately you know, are going to help them play at their peak level, play longer, um, you know, get another contract, play at, you know, and, and be a better professional. Um, and, and they're an extremely savvy and smart group of individuals. They really are. And, and you know, the, the, the contact that they have through social media and through you know, whether it's individual investments or, or individual people, I mean, they're, they're extraordinarily savvy and, and they are up to date on, on, on technology, on data, um, but, but just having that, having that conversation, having the, the ability for them to see the data and understand that we're not looking for absolutes that are positive or negative. We're looking for things that we can modify that can improve for them over time. I think, I think as Deer mentioned, I, central to this is player health. And I think if we're doing a good job in really addressing player health, hopefully um, when you explain to a player these are modifiable factors, it's injury prevention, it's career 
longevity. By staying healthy, you'll be able to perform better. As, as you mentioned, you know, the, probably the, I, th I think the most significant factor in determining you know, an organization's success is you know, player availability. Is a player available to play? Um, and so and if you're a player, yeah, you want to be, you want to be able to play. Um, so if we're successful in really driving at that and then conveying that to the players, I mean, it would, it would hopefully be something that um, they see benefit in. I mean, it makes economic sense across the board. We have frequent conversations with leagues about how do we kind of monetize the, the information that comes out, et cetera. And in fact, the best monetization for any league is to have the very best players <laughs> on the court, on the field, on the ice, wherever they might be. That is what people want to watch. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like player, player welfare and uh, keeping players healthy is fundamentally linked to all of the positives that teams, leagues, and players want to achieve. So it's, 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 it's a wonderful thing to have at the center. But we're at a point right now where we have lots of data. We have lots of numbers, data points. But do we really have the science that tells us what the data is telling us? Do, do we have enough science to say, you know, this data set tells us that you are likely to be on the point of an injury? And if we don't, how are we going to gain that level of authoritative science about what the data means? I mean, my short answer to that is yes. Like, absolutely, <laughs> there, is a, there, is, there are more than two decades of sports science, maybe three decades of sports science that has built up over time. And, you know, it's not perfect. I mean, like, the pursuit of perfection is not a great thing to be going after. I mean, maybe we can pursue it, but we're a long way from it. But um, there is no doubt that this is not... Um, this, there, is a, there is a wonderful art that occurs at the team level by taking the science and understanding how to apply and adapt that to individual players, but the science is solid. It's independently validated. There is a discipline across sports science. There is a discipline in medicine around this as well. Uh, this is, uh, this is a, a, a well-established, very solid body of scientific knowledge. I think, I think teams have begun to recognize, I mean, when, when the wearables first started coming out, you know, various companies had their different devices and various programs would work, work with one or another and they were just collecting data and they were just compiling it and there was very, I would say, uh, rudimentary uh, analysis of that data. And I think what's happened is over time is that people realize that you have this data, but in order to really manage it, you need someone who understands how to manage data and who is savvy from a statistical standpoint and from a bias statistical standpoint, sports science standpoint, to be able to answer the questions that are of interest to the players, to the medical staff, and then of course to coaches. And you, I, what I see happening is A, we're trying to get better with the actual technology in terms of, we talked about validation. B, I think teams and organizations are recognizing you need to have a professional as part of that group, not just um, you know, a coach whose job is to crunch numbers. You need someone who's going to help that coach answer the questions that are of interest. And then, and then really using that data in aggregate. Again, if you're using it just within your organization, you're not going to make very good decisions. And then understanding, taking that data is one thing, but understanding all the confounders that could affect your decision that aren't in a data set. <laughs> and that's where you need people at Casey and, and the medical staff who work with that team and organization that can understand, well, 
yes, we have this information, but it doesn't apply to this player because this player has had this problem and that problem, and we can't simply you know, apply the data to that person. It has to be managed in a different way. So that's why I think we're really growing, but I think what's gonna happen is as we begin to do that more and more, we're gonna realize, well, maybe this isn't what we thought it was gonna be, and we'll, we'll have to learn more. And, and as, as Adira had referenced earlier, you know, as we collect this data longitudinally, it, you know, if we're doing a good job of it, we're strengthening our decision making. You know, as, as, we, as we repeat these measures, as we get historical data, um, that, that we, we change our decision making processes as we get hopefully smarter, uh, get more relevant data as that, as that goes along. And learnings across sports. I mean, there are two and a half thousand teams globally that use our technology across close to 30 sports. And there are learnings across sports. And I think, again, like the passage of time, the collection of more information, this mains, the mainstreaming of, uh, of sports science and sports technology, that's what's happening. It's been tremendously beneficial to the athlete. How do you start to do things like combine very different data sets, so the information you get about um, heart rate or from the wearables with the information you get from blood testing? How do you integrate all of that? Do you need to and can you? <laughs> Casey? <laughs> I, that's a goal. You know, that, that is something that, that we continue to work on, um, both from a, a statistical computer analysis um, and, and historical, combining that with injury data, uh, combining that with, with game load data, uh, things like that, that as we, as we attempt to add new data streams to that, to strengthen our decision makings, to see um, some correlation that goes on with those things, and, and that's an evolving process. And the, the reliability of, of the data that we're getting, that Dr. DeFiori referenced, um, and, and the chronological passage of that over time, you know, it, it does give us a, a, better, a better ability to do that. Yeah, I think, I think what, what, what you're saying is too, is, is as, as you begin to apply the data, you start to see, like you mentioned Carla, so you're looking at your first level of analyses and you're saying, okay, what looks like it's making sense here? And it, you know, it may actually boil down to maybe, who knows, six factors that are really important and the rest are sort of extraneous and they're markers, but they're not the drivers. And so you're gonna focus on these six things. I'm just throwing that out there as a number. But you know, <laughs> what, it could be a combination, <laughs> be a combination of, of, you know, physical data, anthropomorphic data, um, you know, some, some biologic markers, you know, uh, and, and so we don't know what they are yet, but we're, you know, folks like Casey and other organizations are, are drilling down on this. And ultimately, you know, when we have a broader amount of data, we'll be able to do sort of a multivariate analysis of that and say, okay, this is really what we're interested in for this issue. I mean, so we, I mean, speaking in a partisan sense, like we felt strongly for close to a decade that there, there needs to be a central repository for all of this data so that it wasn't siloed in different areas. And so, you know, we, we built something effectively that enables us to go and uh, let teams store all of the kinds of information that you've referenced, self-reported data, medical data, et cetera, and then bring in other data streams like wearable data, um, tactical data from games, usually that's via video. Um, I think that as more and more of this data is collected in a single place and can be interrogated in the way that Dr. DeFiori was speaking about, like the, there'll be some more leaps forward in terms of uh, player welfare. I was going to ask Casey, do, do you discuss this with other trainers or how proprietary is sort of, if you realize this one data point is really helpful for you, do you talk to other trainers? Do you keep it to yourself? How do you disseminate and also get back um, sort of the useful, 
uh, on the floor data. Yeah, we, we do discuss best practices. We do it within the league. We do it within other leagues. Uh, we do it with you know physicians and, and, and therapists and athletic trainers from from across league. You know, there, there's such you know the teams have you know every team wants their own competitive advantage. But player health is is a broad approach. You know, player health. Our goals for player health are not just within our team. It's for the league. You know, as as Adir said, you know, the best player being on the floor across the league. Is better for all of us. You know that that's that's the that's the height of our league. That's the the most compelling you know part of our league are our best players. And you know we we do discuss you know things that we find effective or ineffective or, or best practices. Personally, I feel like with the, the amount of player turnover um, and, and for the overall benefit and health of the league and the players, I, I feel strongly about that. What do you do if data starts to show that a standard practice is not effective, and particularly if players really like it? I, I'm thinking of something as basic as stretching in a warm-up. Um, if, if the science and the data starts to contradict current practices, how do you incorporate the science with the psychology of the player? Um, and, and how, talk to the players. How do you deal with that? I, that goes back to really their overall level of savviness, like, and, and their intelligence. Is that you know the 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 true definition of evidence-based practice? That's a popular term right now. Everything needs to be evidence-based. Evidence-based. That doesn't mean that you take research and you directly apply it to to a to a practical setting. Evidence-based research is the confluence of of research of professional experience from the clinician and from personal preference of the subject. So it's, it's finding the common ground of those three areas and that, that's the definition of evidence-based practice is taking that, it's back to the art of it, is applying it in, in a realm that you're comfortable with with your professional experience from a clinician and into a, a way that's gonna be accepted by the subject, the athlete in this case. Um, so it's, it's discussing those you know, these old habits with new information, and it's combining those to make them feel that they're still getting physically what they want or medically what they want, um, and integrating the best practices of research or of your clinical experience with that. And, and that's, a, that's a continual <laughs> process. <Art>. Yeah. <laughs> and to replicate, I mean, one of the, one of the I think the, the revelations from all of this is the ability to replicate in practice. I mean, you don't get much practice in the second half of the season, but to replicate in practice, um, the load and the activities that are taking place in game. And so one of the findings that came out very early when we started working with, uh, with NBA teams uh, in North America was that a substantial amount of uh, activity was running backwards on the court during a game. And so a heap of work was done by one of the teams to replicate that activity and load in practice, and they saw a significant benefit. And so that's a very simple example, but it's an example of how, you know, replicating load and act actions in practice is, is fundamentally important as well. So what are we not studying? What, what data is not being generated that you would like to see um, studied, generated? I think, one, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just start with, I mean, I think one of the things we haven't talked a lot about um, yet is is this using this data moving forward to do meaningful research. And, and so we're gonna be able to have data that we can begin to use 
on um, a seasonal basis, you know, for preseason, game, game season, off-season conditioning. But over the course of time, we'll actually be able to pose more meaningful research questions because we're going to have the ability to have much more specific factor information on exposure, things like that. So I think one of the things I'd like to see happen with this, and I know I think will happen, certainly at the league level, is to begin to pose meaningful research that incorporates not just the the metrics that we're measuring and training and competition, but incorporates it into overall player health. So there's so many aspects of player health. You know, we, you mentioned a little bit about illnesses. Some players have certain conditions that need to be managed, to, you know, as anyone else does. That needs to be incorporated. We haven't talked at all about, you know, mental health and, and the, the psychological aspect of sport, incorporating that and, and trying to understand how those things affect everything else that we do. How do you measure that? Well, that, that's a difficult <laughs> thing. I mean, there are some tools that um, are validated. Um, and so you can begin to see how you might be able to incorporate those validated tools within this larger context. You know, it's kind of like this 360 approach where you have, you know, wearable technology giving you physical data. Um, you have other measures giving you information on psychological status. I think Casey was referring to ratings of perceived exertion, which is a commonly used tool to sort of get some idea of how a player feels. There are other tools that are a little more in depth that can be used as well. And then you have other medical conditions that certainly affect not only their physical capacity, but how they, what their outlook is. I mean, if you've worked with people who have you know, medical conditions, those medical conditions can weigh very heavily on them. Or if they have a family member who's undergoing you know, uh, a serious medical, has it, being treated for a serious medical, that affects their day-to-day, -day, how they focus and things like that, and understandably so. So I, I think there will be more research that begins to, A, really use this, this performance information, this tracking information to, for injury prevention and, and the things that we all think about are important, but then incorporating that into the whole aspect of player health and individual player and being able to apply that to an individual is much, much more, I think, powerful than, than sort of this, this one aspect of it. I mean, I'd, I'd echo the mental health side of things. I think that, you know, thankfully that's becoming fundamentally more recognised across society, not just in sport. Um, but, uh, you know, and well, what I'd add to that is, for us it's less about just trying to measure additional elements or bringing more data in. It's more about linking that data in the kind of ways that we described. And so, you know, one of the things that um, we might hear from an athlete, in fact, we do hear is you can measure everything, but you can't account for the fact that I've got heart when I play. <laughs> I've got heart. And so, um, and that's true, like, we can't account for that. But over time, what we've been able to see, for example, is one of the things that shows heart is a repetitive second effort. So they might have dropped the ball or, and they get up and they chase it down a second time. And actually that's, um, that's high load under anaerobic conditions. That's what that is. And so, you know, we can start to quantify some of these things that really um, deliver outstanding performance for players. And I think that more of that work will be done over time as well. We, we've talked about elite athletes because you deal with elite athletes. But, but if you had advice for coaches, trainers, even players in a sub-elite um, or even lower level, what would you tell them about the markers they should be tracking? If they really can only track a few or even one, what would you tell them is going to be the most 
useful and the most replicable? Each of you. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm assuming you're talking about injury prevention. Injury prevention yeah. primarily, okay, yes. Talent identification is a whole other right. thing. But I, I think in terms of injury prevention, uh, we've, at the league we've actually done work with the junior NBA and USA basketball and we formed um, several different working groups including playing standards and curriculum for basketball and then player health and wellness. And what we've done is we've, we did a deep dive on the research um, and we took that evidence base, but then we utilized our experienced folks who are coaches, who are former players, uh, who are instructors and, and different th in different levels to, to create some recommendations in terms of what's healthy for a young basketball player. And, and so we, we have, you know, recommendations in terms of based on age groupings, you know, how many practices you should have a week, how many hours should you be on the court. Now, again, this is it's based on data, but it's not, it's, it's still broad. Um, and it, but we incorporated things like sleep. I mean, kids need sleep, right? And, and there is data to suggest that if you're not getting proper sleep, you're more at risk for injury. I think one of the other things we focus on is single sport specialization. And in the sport of basketball, um, early single sport specialization is, is really not helpful. Um, most of the elite players did not specialize until they were at least in high school. Um, and I think that goes contrary to what some younger or lower level coaches and parents would perceive to be the case. And that's important in injury prevention though. We think that having young um, athletes, young people engage in a variety of sports, we call it sports sampling. And then as they get older, they will begin to focus on the sports that they enjoy the most and they have some proficiency in perhaps. Um, and then eventually they'll find something that matches them the best. And we, we think that that also, um, that helps in terms of avoiding some of the overuse type repetitive stress injuries. And I think the other factor that comes into play is rest is part of training. And that often gets lost. And I know Casey knows this probably better than anyone. Rest and recovery are essential to making progress. And again, some parents, uh, you know, go, go, go. They're going from one, volleyball practice to soccer practice in the same day with the same child and then they get home after they've eaten a hamburger in the car and they have supposed to study for two hours and and you know they don't have enough time for sleep so those are fundamental and it gets also some of the tendinopathy issues that we see when I was at UCLA it was very common for us to see players in volleyball and basketball and other sports coming in with pretty ingrained tendinopathies overuse injuries that you know, you're gonna to have to manage for their college career. Um, so players come in with these, these types of injuries that develop over the course of um, a young athlete's youth experience in sport where they maybe have been doing much more than they should have been doing in terms of their overall long-term. So I'll stop there. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think um, the best piece of advice doesn't need any tech, which is don't play when you're hurt. Like that's a good piece of advice. Don't train and don't play when you're feeling hurt. And you see that happen a lot at, at youth sports level. I mean, we've developed a piece of technology which we sell to amateur sports. So usually they're elite aspirational younger athletes. And the number one thing that, they're, again, they're using that for is to look at the load. It's got a load number that's built into it. Look at the load they're exerting in game and then look at the load in practice. And we, encourage, we would encourage them to have set practice days and times so that it's not 
you go and practice whenever you feel like practicing, and trying to ensure that your exertion, so young athletes tend not to underexert at practice, they tend to right. overexert at practice. And so make sure you're not massively overexerting load at practice relative to what you're gonna be exerting in game would be, would be one marker that we would point to. Well, that actually um, made me wonder whether in having all of this really good data, we might sometimes at, at both the pre-elite and the elite level forget some of the basics, diet, sleep, um, recovery. I, is that at all a concern that we just sort of forget what we know works? Well, for me personally, that's, that's where you know, organizational culture comes into play in team sport, is that, you know, lifestyle, sleep, diet, you know, recovery, they need to be the foundation. You know, with, without, without that, there's, there's no, you know, fancy intervention or, you know, any, any kind of, of implementation that we, can, that we can out, we can outrun those. If those basics aren't there, um, then, then everything else is going to be even more challenging than it already is. And that's, that's a large part. You know, the league does a lot of work with player development, um, with young player orientation, things like that, to try the Players Association as well, to try to build that foundation. Um, because if, if that foundation's not there, uh, and that ties into what Adir was just saying too, some of the biggest challenges with the young players is teaching them, you know, some, some of those lifestyle and recovery things, but also, uh, there's so many games in the NBA, especially in, as a young player, that practice is just as important to keep yourself, you know, not, not injury proof, but injury resilient. You know, that, that you have to be training hard to be able to play hard, to, to decrease your exposure to, to risk. Um, and, and those things are foundations of that. To what extent do you track those? Do, do you ask people to keep food diaries, uh, sleep diaries? How, how much of that is actually being tracked? Well, that's, uh, that's up to the individual player. We do do food diaries, we do do food logs for players that are looking to lose or gain weight or change their energy systems, um, you know, things that players are reporting that they're, that they're not doing well with. Uh, similarly with sleep tracking, if a player is having difficulty sleeping or they're trying to assess the amount that they should be sleeping or should be napping, um, they'll do some, some sleep measurement with that. Um, those are very much individual situations for players. Uh, that come along with that education, those daily conversations, and trying to kind of suss out things that, that may be affecting their performance. What if a player comes to you and says, I just saw this amazing diet on the internet that so-and-so is following, or this amazing recovery system, or something. Or a magnetic wristband. Exactly, yeah, so how, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? And, and what if the player says, I have these lucky underwear that I have to wear. How, how do you deal with some of those slightly um, outlying concerns? Wear, wear the underwear, forget the product, uh, usually. But I think, I think you know, we, we get that all the time, and I got, you know, certainly had that over my career. And I think the organizations get it as well, you know, from the higher up. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think, you know, you want to, you don't want to be dismissive, and, and you need to acknowledge that there are new things that come out there. And, and, and so you want to educate uh, your players, your athletes, as well as your coaching staff. I mean, coaches get approached all the time with the latest and the greatest <laughs> as the general managers and through contacts and things like that. And it, education process is really important. And I think it's for, for what we did when I was at UCLA, we had a process so that it kind of took out some of the um, 
individual responses and said, look, hey, we're happy to look at this. This is how we do it. Um, you know, send us your product or let's set up a meeting. Um, and so what I would always say is, you know, critical eye but an open mind and, and try to acknowledge that hey, some of these things may end up being really valuable. Others of them may simply just be somebody trying to make some money, which unfortunately is a lot of it. And, and, but it's important that you don't um, shut down the doors of communication because then what can happen is a player may say, oh, I'm not even going to ask about that. I know what they're going to say. And then they go off and do something and have an unintended consequence, and, and you're, then you're trying to, to help them with that unintended consequence that could have been prevented, whether it's a positive drug test because they took a supplement they didn't know, and, you know, things like that, um, or um, they have a reaction to a product, you know, it's created a medical issue. Um, they, those things do happen, um, and in the media and public, they often don't get reported. So you don't hear about some of these serious consequences that can occur with certain products. And oh, Casey. Yeah, and, and th those conversations, you know, <laughs> especially with my, my owners very front and center with new products and new technology, um, and, and we get lots of those. And there's a very simple start that, that weeds out a lot of those. It's just reaching out to them and introducing yourself and say, could you please send me a copy of your research? And you know, it starts there. If they're not able to produce that, you know, we, we're not really able to go very far down that road anecdotally. You know, we're not yep. viewing player health and player protection you know, anecdotal is not, uh, is, is not sufficient uh, yep. to start. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Most of the, a lot of these companies only have, if they have any research, it's all internal. It's not been <laughs> peer-reviewed or externally validated. And you have to understand that. And I think if you have a, if you've put that into your culture as an organization, that is, that's, that's really helpful. Because that's, that's the process, that's the starting point where if they have some good information, you know, then you've got something you can work with and, and maybe pilot it out or ask them to do some additional work. But exposing your, your athletes to something that's not been well studied, it, you know, we all have a responsibility there to, to prevent that. I mean, there are an insane number of fads that go through pro sports globally. If you have a product, it is actually pretty simple to get five pro athletes somewhere to use your product, and then they get flipped into endorsing the product, which mm -hmm. is some reputational risk attached to it. But it is a it is a hotbed of fadism, this pro space, and I think you know it's not surprising that that's the culture at, at the Mavs. And uh, you know, I think asking for research probably wipes out ninety percent of everything that comes through your door. I, I think we're probably at the point where um, audience questions, which I guess I find on here. <laughs> Um. <laughs> oh, thanks. Okay. Okay. That these are these are some of the audience questions. And there are quite a few. I mean, what's one of the hardest conversations that you've had with an athlete about the decision to play, and did data impact that conversation? I, what was the second part? Did, did, did data, did data impact, impact that conversation? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you've got game day decisions. Um, and sometimes when you have a game day decision, um, you're trying to explain to a player that while this game, especially if, if, if it's considered a big game, you know, a rivalry game or a game with impact on NCAA tournament or, or something like that, you're, you're trying to create a situation where the player understands the risks and the benefits. And 
you know, I think as a medical staff, if you feel very strongly that a player shouldn't play because the risk is too high, you need to let them know that we don't feel comfortable with this, and here's why. On the other hand, if it's some gray area, then you have to engage in a conversation with that player and say, look, here's your injury, here's your risk. We, not, we can't just think about this game. We have to think about the next week and the rest of the season. And do we want to take a risk that if it's like, for example, for a hamstring, it's pretty, pretty common. You know, you've, you've got a hamstring strain. We think, you're, we think you're about three quarters of the way there. So there's some risk that you could re-injure this in this game, and that might put you out for another three or four weeks. If we wait another week, that risk goes down. And so having those conversations, I found, really is helpful in, in making a player have sort of an informed, it's an informed decision-making process. Like I said, if, if we really feel very strongly that it's, it's too high of a risk on the negative side, then we'll let them know. I think the other ones that are really hard um, aren't, aren't um, necessarily game day, but they're retirement decisions. When a player's had a number of injuries and they're really at a point where they need to think about what's the risk to my long-term health? Um, should I try to continue to play and risk doing further damage or risk having further consequences down the road? And, and those are very difficult decisions um, with athletes whose you know, their, their youth experience, their collegiate experience, and ultimately their professional experience has really been built towards that. And now they need to start thinking about life without that sport. In, in, in those difficult situations with the players, that's where some of our data has changed quite a bit in the last five or six years in that some of our traditional metrics for return to play, speed, agility, you know, things like that, when those measure out evenly, yet then we look at maybe some force plate data, maybe we look at some ultrasound images of some muscle tissue, some things like that, and we see some things aren't, that helps us with that conversation with the athlete. And the athlete's like, hey, I feel great. I'm able to run. I've been practicing this and that. And we're like, we're like, yes, but when we look at your force plate data compared to your preseason data when you were, you know, your symmetry is still this. We feel like it's at risk. You're not, you're not decelerating the same way. And they, they respond to that. They may not love it, <laughs> but, but, but they, they understand objectively and they respond to that. It, it, the next question actually builds exactly on that, which is how do you change coach and player attitudes toward playing hurt and what that means? That's, which I, I, is also sort of return to play and it's decisions. risk. I think Dr. DeFiore said, I mean, it's, it's risk. Uh, you know, can we reduce that risk? You know, the, the question that the players have or, or that coaches have all the time is like, a player returning from injury is like, you know, well, as he, is he at risk for re-injury? The answer is yes. Like, yes, the answer is always yes. So, but can we, can we reduce that? You know, can we quantify the things that we're measuring to reduce that risk? And, and with the player having a voice in that, um, with, 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 you know, with the return to play protocols that are in place, you know, can we continue to reduce that risk? And I think what Casey was saying about, like, for example, the hamstring issue, where you're going to use some, some measurements of force generation and, and uh, recovery and things like that to, to try to give some objective parameters to the recovery of that injury, that's still a marker, <laughs> right? So it, it doesn't necessarily pre allow us to, pre because we don't have that, we don't have like, aggregate data that says, well, you know, when the hamstrings at this percentage, we usually, you say within 10% of the, of the uninjured side, but we don't really have great data that says like, well, if you're within 10% of the other side, your risk of having a re-injury is like 2%. We, we don't know that. So there's still a lot of discussion that needs to go into that. And hopefully down the road, we have better research to, to look at other things that might help us predict 
that risk of, of re-injury, which is always, uh, the risk is never zero. As yeah. I mean, you also mentioned coaches in that question. Mm -hmm. So three or four years ago, I was here and I said, people thought I was being facetious. I said, there, were, there, there are two types of coaches, coaches that embrace this data and former coaches. That's what the future <laughs> will hold. And that's largely been the case. I mean, it's not entirely true yet, but there's been a, quite a dramatic change in the last three or four years and that people have come into organisations who are much more inclined towards the science side of things. And that has also no doubt had an impact on um, player receptiveness to, to this kind of information and guidance. Next is, what is something unexpected that you've learned because of data analysis that has changed how you manage players? <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have found some interesting data sets in our practice and the way we structure our practice. Um, you know, oftentimes coaches will increase intensity of practice or duration, you know, based on the schedule, based on game performance, you know, based on training cycles, things like that. And, and what some of the data has shown us is that some of, the, some of the activities that we were doing when we thought we were having down days were actually much more intense physiologically than we, than the coaches, than us, and we probably anticipated. And that we've seen that, that sometimes when we'll be doing some things in the half court, or we'll be doing things where we're not scrimmaging fully up and down, we're having much more load on the body in accelerations and decelerations in a small space. Uh, so that's been a very interesting thing for us as we've structured our practices and tried to, tried to mitigate some of those non-contact injuries. What about you with sports outside of basketball? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to say a very obscure sport, <laughs> which is uh, there's a sport called cricket, which is a lunatic sport, um, uh, where the games can go for five days. So there's not a lot to do in Australia and England and places like that. And so they play for five days. And the most common, 70% of all injuries are to fast bowlers. It's like a pitching kind of, kind of injury. And so... Um, they thought that that was from overtraining the fast bowlers. And when they d dug into the data, much like what you saw with the, the data that you were talking about, Casey, what they saw is it was actually undertraining the fast yeah. bowlers. And in practice, they were holding back to 60 or 70% of max speed. And then they went into games and they were underprepared for the games and they suffered injuries. And the consequence of that is they actually increased the intensity of training and that reduced injury. So it was, uh, it was, it was pretty dramatic. So that has applicability in baseball, for example, that kind of example. Well, it could have applicability even in running. I mean, if, you're, if you never go as hard as you're going to go in a race, you're going to be in trouble. Well, well you know, rugby, if you don't train, uh, so rugby also quite a big sport at college in the US. And so if in practice you're not engaging in full contact, then you are much more likely to be injured during a game. And so the practice was modified so that it was counterintuitive. You increase the risk slightly at practice, but dramatically reduce the risk in game as a consequence of that. Someone asks, do you think we'll see biometric data expanding more into youth sports? Why or why not? Dr. DeFiori, I'll ask you first. So, so and is, it, is that desirable or not? So, well, that, that's a difficult question. <laughs> I, I think yes. I mean, you know, um, you know, you will, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, having a radar gun at a Little League game is no, no, nobody raises an eyebrow anymore, right? Um, so, I'm not, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, um, but I do think that some of these things will 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 get down into youth sports for sure. Um, we we see it all the time in, in other aspects of youth sport, where you know maybe um, 
parents and coaches whose expectations are a little uh, <laughs> out of perspective um, will want to incorporate different technologies that they read about, they hear about at the, at the elite levels. Um, and I think it gets back to, you know, what are the goals uh, at youth sport, at the youth sport level? And, and if the goal is injury prevention to the extent that we can use technology to help with that, I, I think that's great. Um, I think, on the other hand, if the technology is being used to try to drive um, a training program with a young athlete or to try to identify more players who are going to track better in terms of their long-term success, I, I think that's fraught with a lot, a lot of um, unintended consequences. So I, I think it will remain to be seen, uh, but I'm, I'm sure that this technology is already being used in training centers. Um, I, I know that. Whether they're going to be used on, in game situations, uh, in practices with you know, small groups, um, I, I think, it, especially as costs go down, you're going to see that. Um, but again, I think how it gets back to what you asked at the beginning, how's this data going to be utilized? And I think at that level, the lack of sophistication, the lack of understanding, and then understanding really what the goals are for youth sport, are, are gonna, it's going to be problematic. This, this is the last question, and, and I'm going to ask you, Casey, because um, we mentioned earlier sort of the art and science of dealing with athletes. And given all of the data, would you say your job is still more art or more science? And, and does that matter? I think, I think in some ways I can equate it a lot to coaching. You know, there's, there's a reason that, you know, at these levels we don't, we don't hire a coach based on a PhD in coaching. <laughs> you know, and it's that, it's the ability, it's the ability to, to understand information, to, to process and comprehend the information, but it's the ability to communicate it. And it's the ability, as Dr. DeFiore mentioned earlier, to be, to be open to new ideas, um, but to be critical of those ideas, to view them with a critical eye. And, and so I don't think there is a more art or science. I think it's that combination of both that make, you know, that, that make for successful players. They combine both of those that make for successful medical personnel um, that make for successful coaches. So I, I, I think it's the ability to continue to, to integrate those, you know, specific to the, the individual athlete or the individual client's needs. Great. Well, thank you all very, very much. And thank you all for coming. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.